welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. If you have your Bible, Old Testament, Minor Prophet, Micah, one of my favorite Old Testament Christmas passages. It's all right if you've got to turn to the table of contents to find it. I did it for you. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. So if you get any of those, go forward or backwards. This little, what theologians call minor prophet, Micah, nestled in the middle of some other minor prophets, writes under the inspiration of God as a prophet, one of the most interesting messianic prophecies, I believe, in all of Scripture. While you're fumbling and turning, that's fine. I want to say, first, does the church not look beautiful? As it always does every year. Um, of course, that doesn't just happen. Miss Chrissy Berryman and her elves, she recruits people every year, begs for people every year but somehow it always turns out perfect. I uh, appreciate Chrissy and, and all her help making the church look pretty. Tonight, be here. We'll have communion together, candlelight service, and just so you know, that's not something we publicize and advertise to the world. Communion is special uh, for the church, for the believer, and so we want you to be here. Church will be decorated like it is. We'll have candles everywhere, and uh, we'll have communion together and then have a candlelight service, uh, basically singing hymns and uh, carols together. It's a great time of year. We started it several years ago, and uh, it's probably one of our biggest Sunday night crowds of the year, and um, just encourage you to be here tonight. Everybody found Micah, chapter number five. Two little verses I want us to read as we stand together and honor God's perfect word. I intentionally wanted us to read verse one. We'll actually refer to verses three, four, and five in the next couple hours as we look at this minor prophet and his messianic prophecy. Micah is writing to Israel, Judah more specifically, the southern part of Israel when it was divided into two nations, if you will. And God says to him, now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou, but you Bethlehem Ephrata, or Ephrata, as some of the Jews I've heard say it. Though you be small or little among the thousands, some versions say clans of Judah, Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Would you pray with me, Father? We thank you for your word. This church, most of these people, 
certainly believe it is absolute truth. Even the minor prophet tucked away in the Old Testament passages, Micah, is inspired by you. Today, I pray that we won't just hear another sermon. God, that we will experience your sovereignty, the reality that your word is true, and that you are a God of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm doing something this month I've never done as pastor, as youth pastor, as preacher, and I'm preaching, unless something changes through, because there's four Sundays before Christmas, a series, no special title other than Hymns of Christmas. Every year, forever, we've sang Christmas songs, Christmas hymns, Christmas carols, and I'm not here to argue or to debate or be on a soapbox about Christmas carols. But I think Christmas carols can be compared to church sometimes for the Christian. We sing it. We know it. We might even go door to door back in the day. I was telling somebody the other day, the old days when I was young, when we would go Christmas caroling as a youth, and Miss Sarah Childers would take her accordion and we would go door to door, some with accordion, some with not, some we didn't plan on accordion, but all of a sudden, she would just chime in and start playing the accordion. Sarah Childers, Miss Childers, watches us regularly. She calls and encourages me, if you're watching today, Miss Sarah. I remember those days uh, and um, fond memories as a child, as a teenager. But Christmas carols can be sung because it's Christmas and we like them, but we never really listen to the words a lot of times. I'm not talking about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, or Santa Claus is coming to town, or some of your modern favorites like Grandma got ran over by a reindeer. I'm talking about good godly Christmas hymns and carols. We just sang a few. And they are hymns of praise and glory to God. Uh, those rich Christmas hymns talk about the um, Emmanuel, God with us, the incarnation of God in the flesh, Jesus coming to earth. And if we're not careful, we'll just sing them and not really worship or appreciate the worship behind them. I love Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and today's hymn is O Little Town of Bethlehem. You may be intrigued by Bethlehem, you may not. You may have never thought about it the way I've thought about it or the way I'm going to deliver it today. But in Micah's prophetic scripture, Micah is writing around 750 B.C., 750 years before Christ. Now, I've got I to gotta give a, a, an alert. This would be a crawler on the bottom of the screen if you're watching TV, especially for the young ones. I told my wife a couple days ago, I said, I'm either going to bore some people out of their minds in the first few minutes, or the, the nerds and the history buffs are going to be intrigued. But what I want to say, especially to those of you who are young and have a very short attention span, lest you know 
don't know who I'm talking about. I could call names, but I won't. What I want, as I bore you with some history, the overarching theme of this sermon, which is not the title, is like threefold. God knows what he's doing. God is a God of his word. God is sovereign. God is in complete control. We can read a 750 BC text where God inspires a prophet to teach his word, to preach his word, to write his word, and we can be assured 2,770 odd years later that the same God is a God of his word, and if he says something, he will do it. And he has said some things that haven't come to pass yet, but they will come to pass. I find myself often reading scripture and I'll preach and I'll say something silly like, you know what, the more I study, the more I realize God, God's smart. He knows what he's doing. Like he's got this figured out. And that would be a good time to waste a few minutes, but just to remind you, I'll make it quickly, quick to say that this book wasn't written in one day or one week by one person. This book was written over thousands of years by many different authors who didn't know each other and didn't overlap each other in life, who didn't have another book to write on. They didn't have this previous and say, hey, I'll write about that and it'll look like it happened. This is an intricately sovereign book inspired by God that's come to pass. A lot of it that he said would come to pass. And in Micah's letter, if you will, in his deliverance, or message to the, to I'll say Israel, we understand this was Judah. He gives a message that all through this, by the way, Micah's an interesting book. Micah prophesies about Jesus and today, 750 BC, but he also prophesies and teaches about the millennial reign of Christ. So it's, it's, it's an, it's, Exciting enough that he prophesies about Jesus being born, but he prophesies a few thousand years in the future about the millennial reign of this baby that's going to be born in Bethlehem. We're not here to preach that today. That would be a, a six-month sermon series, and I'm not prepared for that today. His message was one of impending judgment to Israel because of their failure to acknowledge God. It's this cycle that Israel finds themselves in. They're practicing idolatry because of the other countries who have influenced them. He tells them, like many times before, that Judah would be conquered by another pagan country. Specifically, he mentions Babylon, who was ruled by Assyria at the time. In verse 1, you see the glimpse of this prophecy. Gather your troops. Get ready. This impending judgment is coming. And if you think about this millennially, I know that might be a stretch, but if you think about this prophetically, uh, not just in 700 BC, he's saying to them, hey, you're going to be overtaken. By the way, God allowed his people to be overtaken by the enemy when they deserted him. He allowed it. He turned hearts of kings. He hardened hearts of kings. He was 
intricately in control of these events that took place, even the captivity of his own people. Quick note, a nation that turns its back on God is in serious possibilities of God saying, I'm done. Nobody heard me say America has replaced Israel. I didn't say that. But I'm saying based on the principles and the fundamentals of the word of God in the Old Testament and the covenant of God with his people, the principles would teach that a nation that was founded upon God and following his statutes who suddenly decides to turn their back on him and his principles is certainly in danger of God saying, hey, do what you want to do. Micah prophesies, Judah, get ready. Your idolatry brings results. He's not just talking, this is important before we look at verse two again. He's not just talking about the immediacy of the Assyrian Babylonian captivity. He's talking about, he's, he's teaching a lesson that from now on, when you turn your back on God, you are subject to being taken into captivity. But he's also talking about the immediacy of the birth of their deliverer, please pay attention, who is also the millennial deliverer, who will be the deliverer of all people forever and ever. Look at Micah 4.10 if you want to flip back there. It'll probably be on the screen. Be in labor, and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon, there shalt thou, thou be delivered. It's interesting, he prophesies that they will be taken captive by Babylon, but that's also where they'll be delivered. Notice the last part of verse 10. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. While Micah is delivering a message of judgment, he's also delivering a message of hope and a message of deliverance. It's hard for me not to get ahead, and, but I want to interject here and say the same Bible, the same gospel that delivers a message of judgment because sin came into the world and death by sin so death has passed upon all men, for all have sinned. The same gospel, the same book, the same message of judgment also has a message of peace, a message of comfort, a message of redemption, a message of deliverance. He speaks to both deliverance and restoration of Israel. Not just from Babylonian captivity to come, but he speaks millennially of the deliverance that is available to those of uh, to everyone who trusts in the deliverer. Really? 750 years before Jesus was born? Micah must have been a pretty smart guy. Nah, Micah was a prophet of God who was close to God and knew God's word and God poured into him his spirit to write the word of God. Micah chapter seven, verses 18 through 20. By the way, Micah's name means uh, who is a God like you? He writes, 
about his, and he kind of throws in his namesake here in verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delights in his mercy. This is the God that Micah is prophesying will judge his people, but he's also reminding them or encouraging them to know that he's a God that delights in mercy. Please let's never read Micah or Old Testament prophecies and miss the gospel. This is all about him. There are are too many people today who want to dismiss the Old Testament altogether. And I'm not here to talk about Andy Stanley again, but he's one of them. But he's not alone. He's got some minions But the first half of this book is all about Jesus. And the gospel is intricately woven into every prophecy. Now we sometimes don't see it, but it's there. And the God who is a God of wrath and judgment is also a God of grace and mercy to offer deliverance to those who will put their faith and trust in him and him alone. He will not retain his anger forever. He delights in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. Thank God for his compassion toward us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. That sounds like we're reading that out of 1 Corinthians or Romans. This is in Micah. Thou will perform the truth to Jacob and to the mercy and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto the fathers from the days of old. We look at this little town of Bethlehem, God teaches a lot. First, I want us to look, and this is, if you weren't already bored, this is the part that's going to bore you. Some of you, I feel, oh, Lord, it can't get worse than that, can it? I want us to first look at the place of Bethlehem. What is significant about Bethlehem? Well, most people know Jesus was born there. I want us to, because I, I, I don't know why, but I felt like it would be important to to talk specifics about Bethlehem now and Bethlehem then, then we'll look at that. And I actually, I had Tim throw up a, a picture of a map of, Bethlehem, of Israel. Some of you might need your spectacles for that. But um, today's an interesting day with, in Bethlehem. Bethlehem usually has about two million visitors a year. Usually, close to a quarter million, quarter of a million people visit Bethlehem the week of Christmas. There are news articles, I watched a few this week and read some that basically says Bethlehem is a ghost town, which is sad in a lot of ways. I'm not here to talk about that. But the birthplace of Jesus, because of the war that's going on with Hamas and uh, Israel, is um, desolate right now. It's about 45 miles, you can kind of see it maybe, southeast of the Gaza Strip or Gaza. It's part of the West Bank. The West Bank is Palestinian occupied. I'm careful how I say this. It's um, Palestinian occupied Israel. Okay. But it's Bethlehem. Some of us have been to Bethlehem. I've been to Bethlehem. I have to share this, and I hope you just just let your mind go. Um, Jews 
are not allowed in Bethlehem. Now, certain Jews can get in Bethlehem if they have certain credentials, tour guides, things like that. Many of them won't. And there's a lot of hostility there. Uh, when we went the last time, our Jewish tour guide said, I'm going to stop here, somebody's going to pick you up, and it's going to be a Palestinian. I was like, um, terrorist? Like, You're going to let a terrorist on the bus? <laughs> and um, so, hey, nice to meet you. And he was a Christian um, Palestinian. And maybe he is. I hope he was. But I was nervous. Um, you go into Bethlehem. Bethlehem has one of the most uh, technologically advanced border walls in the world. Imagine that. It can be done. And um, we entered in. Unfortunately, and, and I'm, I don't mean this to, maybe, I don't know how I mean it, but uh, Bethlehem, the place of Jesus' birth, is, is one of the trashiest places in Israel. And um, it's because of who occupies it. I'll just say it that way. And so, but what's interesting, just, just for whatever, tuck it away, uh, Jews can't go into Bethlehem, but the Palestinians can leave the border anytime and go into Israel all they want. That, that sounds fair and sounds like something. The church of the nativity is in Bethlehem. I've been there. Some people in this church have been there. Some are really upset right now as I talk about it because we were going to be going there in about three weeks, four weeks. But we won't. I've got a few pictures of the Church of Nativity that I wanted you to see. This is the outside of the Church of Nativity where you go in, you can see the people. Some of those are people in our group. Uh, the next, I want to show you this next picture. Um, that's one of our people. That's actually Gary Brumley uh, going into the eye of a needle. Um, getting into the Church of Nativity. Church of Nativity is the oldest uh, church in Israel ever uh, constructed. Uh, it's actually built over, it's a basilica. The original basilica was built in about 300 AD over the believed cave where Jesus would have been born. We'll get there in a second. It was rebuilt by the Byzantine Empire in the 500s. One of the coolest things about it, if you're a history nerd, is when you go in, you, they actually you can lift the floor up and see the Byzantine floor uh, from 500 AD. People go there, they have Christmas in Bethlehem, there's Christmas trees, the whole nine yards, and now there's nobody there. I may have a couple other pictures just for the fun. That's the inside, very ornate, beautiful Catholic church. This is supposedly the site of the birth of Jesus. Um, of course, of course, we don't know that, but it's somewhere in the area, between there and about 10 miles away, <laughs> but... Um, Anyway, a very holy site to the Catholic Church. That's Bethlehem today. But what about this Bethlehem Ephrata or Ephrata that Micah mentions? There's actually historically two Bethlehems. One's north, uh, way, way up north of Jerusalem. But the other one in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, he specifically calls out Bethlehem Ephrata. A specific Bethlehem that we have found that historians, archaeologists have found, obviously it's this place where the church and the nativity is at. Bethlehem, most people know, means house of bread. Ephrata is, it's not a suburb. Some people think, well, it's a suburb. It's more specific. It speaks 
of an agricultural center. It gives the specifics of which Bethlehem was talked about. And Micah 4.8 says this. I want you to look at Micah 4.8. And I hope this helps us and makes a little sense. And thou, old tower of the flock, it's underlined, old tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee it shall come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Micah 5, 2 gets a lot of credit for prophesying where Jesus was born, but Micah 4, 8 is almost right there at it. As a matter of fact, Micah 4, 8 more specifically identifies an area in Bethlehem where Jesus would have been born or, as we'll see, where the announcement to the shepherds would have been made. He refers to the tower of the flock. Now, I'm going to throw some history out. In the fourth century, the emperor of Caesarea wrote a book, and in this book, he mentioned the tower of the flock being about one mile east of the traditional site of Bethlehem. So people went and found it. There's actually some, some, some older pictures. I think I have a couple older pictures maybe up there. This, is, uh, this was actually 1900s when this picture was made. This is an example. This is one of the towers of the flock that were found about a mile east of downtown Bethlehem. Now, if you're at this point saying, what is going on? Is this show and tell? I hope it helps. If not, just roll with it. So what does tower of the flock mean? They discovered this, and the word there, the Hebrew words are migdal eater. It means fort or tower of the flocks. In Genesis chapter 35, verses 19 through 21, Jacob's wife, Rachel, dies after giving birth. The Bible says she was buried in Bethlehem. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. You can make the connection there. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. And Israel journeyed, that's Jacob, Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Adar or the tower of the flock. This all comes together when we think about the significance of this tower that's referred to in both Micah and in Genesis. We see in 1 Samuel, most of us know, but we see in 1 Samuel chapter 17 that King David was born in Bethlehem. In verse, seven, in verse 12, now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons, and the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul, and the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul into battle. The names of the three sons that went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next unto him, uh, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. And David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. King David was born in Bethlehem. His family was from Bethlehem. He had land in Bethlehem. History and archaeology teaches us that he dedicated land in Bethlehem for the raising and watching over the sacrificial sheep the sheep to be sacrificed by the priest. David wanted to build the, the tabernacle. He wanted to build the temple. And he was obviously a man after God's own heart. And he dedicated land in Bethlehem for the raising, for the watching, for the shepherding of not just any sheep, 
but the sheep that were to be taken to the sacrifice in the temple. In this land, there were towers of the flock. Not your normal shepherds watching normal sheep. But these towers are all over. There's several of the remains still around today because these sheep needed to be watched. They had to be perfect. They had to be um, spotless. Now, for another sermon for another day, how interesting is it that the shepherds who were watching the sacrificial sheep were the first ones that the angel appears to and says, hey, the sacrificial lamb is being born today in Bethlehem. Come see him. This is the Bethlehem that Micah is talking about and predicting. 750 years before Jesus was born, this is where he's going to be born. The place of Bethlehem is quite interesting. Some of you can wake up now. But I want us to real quick look at the probability of Bethlehem. What's the chances of this happening? Well, some of you are very spiritual right now and saying, well, God said it, so the chance is 120%. But to the, to the, to the casual onlooker, what are the, what's the probabilities of this obscure little town, Bethlehem, being prominent? Now, I have to tell you this quick story because some of you are, most of you are local and I would appreciate this. Uh, 20 plus years ago, God, I'm getting old um, I'm teaching a ninth grade Life of Christ Bible class. And I'm talking about uh, Micah, talking about the birth of Jesus because it's Life of Christ in the four Gospels. And, and I'm trying to explain to them what Bethlehem was like. And I said, uh, it's, it was like the armpit of Israel. And I don't know why I said that. I obviously didn't know what I know today and preached that it wasn't the armpit. It was quite special, but I didn't know any better. And I said, it's the armpit of Israel, kind of like Landis to North Carolina. <laughs> I didn't live in Landis at the time. I lived in the metropolis of Kannapolis at the time. So I was throwing Landis under the bus. Ninth grade kids in Charlotte. I'm talking about Landis. And I said, it's like the armpit of North Carolina, Landis, North Carolina. Nobody knows where Landis is. And this girl says, I do. It's like, how do you know where Landis is? I mean, we're Charlotte. We're rich folks up here. Yada. And uh, she said, my grandpa used to pastor there. I said, what church? She said, Landis Baptist Church. <laughs> I said, who's your grandpa? Anybody know who her grandpa was? Richard Horn. I said, you know Richard Horn? And she's like, that's my grandpa. I said, God bless you and your family. And um, anyway, so that's my Landis Bethlehem story right there. And um, her dad, David Snow, is now the pastor of Community Baptist in Mount Pleasant. No, David, love that family. If you don't love David, David, I hope you're watching. If you don't love David Snow, you're lost and on your way to hell. David is one of the greatest men that's ever walked. And uh, we've got a great family. And Crystal uh, brought me down to the Landis level that day in class. But what are the probabilities? Though you be low among the thousands. There's, there's so much to say here, but I'll say this. Contextually, Bethlehem was not the armpit of Israel. Bethlehem had a heritage. Bethlehem was the birthplace of King David. His family was from Bethlehem. Uh, Rachel was buried in Bethlehem. Uh, the whole Naomi, Ruth, and all Bethlehem was prevalent. People knew about Bethlehem. 
But at Micah's day in 700 years before Christ, he writes, though you be low among the thousands or the tribes or the clans of, of Israel. This is important. Israel was so idolatrous. Israel had turned its back so much on God that the place of Bethlehem was an afterthought. They had moved so far away from God, he said, though you be low among the thousands. Listen, they, there, there are generations that raise up and know not God. And this had happened. People had turned their backs on gods and fathers and, and grandfathers and grandparents had turned their back to where Bethlehem was an afterthought at this point. It should not have been an afterthought. Yet, in prophetic nature, Micah says, hey, the deliverer is going to be born there. What are the odds? Well, Luke chapter 2 tells us that the odds were pretty good. And we know the Christmas story that Charlie Brown gave us in um, Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days. Listen to, listen to this. It's not Christmas yet, but listen to this. That there, were a, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this tax was first made when Serenius was governor. Check on that. And all, and all went to be taxed. Everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up to Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house in, of house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was, and while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. So please just humor with me a little bit. What are the probabilities? Mary and Joseph get engaged to be married. How did that happen? We don't know. Blind date? Probably not. We do know enough of New Testament history to know probably how this happened. But why Joseph? Don't know. Why Mary? Don't know. I know the spiritual answer. Just kind of humor me. They're engaged. She's pregnant. It's on the head. It's in the. It's on Facebook. For sure. It's a lot there we don't really hear about, but certainly have. Can connect the dots. Coincidentally, there's a census and a taxing. Hey, everybody's got to go back to where they were born. Where are you from, Joseph? I got to go back to Bethlehem. That's where I'm from. What are the odds that he's from Bethlehem? She's great with child. Now, here's where some people will. They were pretty much married, but they were engaged to be married. It's a little different than it is today. Why did she go with him? Some people, well, they were married. They got to go to get, no, he had to go back to where he was from. She's great with child, obviously pretty great with child. Probably wouldn't have been a good idea to go, but she went. I don't know what that argument looked like around the dinner table, but she went. They make it all the way to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is 93 miles from Nazareth. I did the math. It's a four days journey, walking two and a half miles a day, an hour for eight hours. Now, they didn't, nobody journaled that, but that's how long. Mary and Joseph walk, although some of us like to see her on a donkey, probably a little more uncomfortable than walking, but 
They go all the way four days, potentially, 93 miles away. She's so great with child, why didn't she go before then? Could she have gone before then? Four days on the road, eight hours a day, walking two to three miles an hour, nothing went wrong. Or did it? We don't know. But she gets to Bethlehem. She doesn't know Micah 5.2 means her. Somebody might argue with that. They're just doing what they have to do. And coincidentally, they get to Bethlehem. She doesn't go into labor on the way to Bethlehem. She doesn't go, on, go into labor on the way back to Bethlehem. When they get to Bethlehem, she's going to deliver. And 750 years, teenagers, listen to me. Those of you who might be dozing off, listen to me. 750 years before this event, a man under the inspiration of God, speaking the word of God, told that this event would happen. What are the chances? What are the probabilities? You don't hear anything else, and I said this earlier, I'm gonna say it again. God keeps his word. And God's word is true. And God's word is sure. And the things that seem impossible with man are possible with God. Jesus was teaching the disciples one time, and he said it's easier for a rich man to get through, uh, or camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. Y'all remember that? And I told you the eye of a needle, see the connection? And, and the disciples were, you know, they were smart deacons, and they were like, what in the world could this mean? And Jesus turned around and said, hey, um, he overheard them say, this is impossible. Y'all remember that? And Jesus said, hey, with man it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. If God said it, he will do it. And there's a lot God has said in his word to his people, and he will do it. He will keep his word. And, and if I forget to say it, I'm going to say it here. He promised, God promised to send a deliverer, a Messiah. And he delivered Amen. on his promise. And it was not the way man would have drawn it up, and it probably wasn't at the, same, at the right time for man, and it was probably when they least expected it. And when he came, he didn't look like what they expected and wanted. And he's promised to come back again. Can y'all deduce from there? He's going to. And Jesus will return again. Why would he keep his word so far and then not keep his word? He's going to come back. And it's probably not going to be when you think it's going to be. but he's gonna come back. The probability of this happen, this happening, I, I found this, I've, I used to teach this, and, and there, was a, there was a number that went, but anywhere between 325 and 300 messianic prophecies of Jesus were fulfilled in Jesus' life, death, and burial, and resurrection. If there's 324 prophecies, that were fulfilled by one man, the odds are crazy. You say, how crazy are the odds? Now, I'm gonna give some of you who are bored a task. And if anybody does this, young children, not adults, I'll give you a special prize. Maybe. The odds of one man, now this, these are, this is math. And math is, Math, even though we do it differently than we used to, math is still math. 
And math doesn't lie. The probability of one man fulfilling only 48 of these miracles, prophesied hundreds of years, fulfilled in the life of Christ. One man fulfilling 48 is one out of 10, let me make with 157 zeros after it. That's math. That's not Proverbs. That's not Romans. That's just math. One person fulfilling only 48. There's one out of 10 with 157 zeros behind it. What are the odds? What are the probabilities? And the answer is still with God, all things are possible. And God keeps his word. And when man says that ain't gonna happen, can't happen, doesn't look like it happened, I don't see any way for it to happen. If God said it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. By the way, let me throw this in for certain fans of certain people. It's not going to happen because you named it and claimed it to happen. It's only going to happen if God said it's going to happen. Now, you might name and claim a promise of God, but you're not going to speak something into existence. Only God can speak something into existence. Place of Bethlehem, the probability of Bethlehem, and real quick, because I know what time it is, the actual prophecy of Bethlehem. Yeah, it was 750 years before, but what does this prophecy say about this deliverer, Jesus. And I'm going to make this real quick. The role of the prophet, we've already said, was to present the word of God, to speak the word of God. Listen, and some of this came up in our Sunday school class this morning, and I want us to understand, um, I'm not going to reteach that or kind of draw the connection. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. And faith is the subject of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And if you've ever been saved, this is, this is serious, it's because you had faith in God's word, the word of God. And you did, and you're doing what God's word says that you had to do and that you need to do to be saved. When Micah or any other prophet wrote they were speaking God's word. Just like when Moses said, God said, I'm gonna raise up this stick with a serpent on it, and if you look at it, you won't die. It wasn't the stick and the serpent. It was the word from God that they put their faith and trust in. It wasn't Moses' word. It certainly wasn't this silly stick. It was faith in the message of God. And Micah is preaching a message of God, of who Jesus is. And here in the following verses, Micah's prophecy tells us where he would be born, but it also tells us who he would be. And if I spent three minutes on each one of these, we'd be out by one, and I'm not gonna do that because it's Christmas and I'm in a giving mood. Micah 5.2 says he will be ruler. Zechariah 9 said he would be ruler. Isaiah 55 said he would be leader and commander. To be ruler means that he has dominion over. It means that he would be the king. Not just the king to deliver them from Babylonian captivity, but the millennial king. He is king over all. 
He also said that he will be eternal. Oh, this is a 45-minute sermon, and you know that. He said, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. It means, it, it means the, his origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Although Jesus was born in Bethlehem, this birth was not his beginning. He was God. He is God. In John chapter 8, the same Jesus, who's now a man teaching disciples and, and preaching to scribes and Pharisees, says, before Abraham was, I am. He's eternal. John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. He is eternal. Jesus is not just a baby. He is Emmanuel, God with us. God did love the world so much that he took on flesh and dwelt among us, came to us. He is eternal. Verse four tells us that he is the shepherd. You'll miss this if you read it fast. And if you read it in the King James, it says, and he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord. Uh, the feed there, stand and feed. He will stand and shepherd his flock. He will feed them. He will shepherd them. Isaiah the prophet prophesied messianically and said, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arms. Hey, I know it's getting late, but I want you to hear this verse. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom, bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Prophesying about Jesus. He is to be the shepherd. He is the shepherd. Jesus said of himself in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd, you know what he does? says, I'll lay down my life for my sheep. This is who Micah is predicting to be born. He would be the shepherd. He would be eternal. He would be king and ruler. He would also be their security. Listen, there's so many connections here. He says in verse four, and they shall abide. That means to live in security, to live securely. They shall abide for now. Shall he be great? How long? Until the ends of the earth. This Jesus that Micah is prophesying, predicting, will be the ruler, he'll be the deliverer, he'll be the security of Israel, not just Israel, but until the ends of the earth. He is security. Forever. Those who trust in Jesus shall abide in security because he, of his eternal greatness. The angel told Mary in Luke chapter 1, he shall be great. And he shall be great, according to Micah, eternally. And last, he will provide peace. Micah 5, 5, and this man shall be the peace. Isaiah prophesied messianically, for unto us the child is born, unto us the son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, don't miss it, the Prince of Peace. This deliverer 
prophesied by Micah seven centuries before Jesus was ever born. Seven centuries before Joseph and Mary were born. Before they ever got engaged. God told his people if they would only listen and only believe I'm sending you a deliverer. I'm going to send you a deliverer to deliver you from the bondage of Babylonian, Assyrian, any other pagan world's captivity. But the millennial message was, I'm sending a deliverer to deliver, to deliver you from the greatest captivity man has ever known. Israel, the Jew to this day, for the most part, has rejected the Messiah. I've mentioned this a few times now on Wednesday nights. I've went into greater detail on it. One of the saddest pictures in the world is an Orthodox Jew who's practicing Judaism at the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, right now in Israel, crying, praying, reading scripture, begging for the Messiah to come to deliver them. They were looking for a political king, and they still are. They were looking for a military king, and they still are. But he came not to deliver militarily, not to deliver financially, not to deliver politically, but to, to deliver mankind from the sin that has wrecked their life. And if you trust in him, he will be your deliverer. He will be your security. He will be your peace that surpasses all understanding. He'll be your shepherd. He will lead you. And you'll be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I don't need to want because I've got all I need. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. done my best to preach your word as truth and maybe in my own humanity convince people that your word is true and faithful and that you're a God of your word but my attempts are feeble and I pray today that somehow your Holy Spirit would move on people's hearts Maybe this is the person that's never been saved, they've never been born again, and they've heard your word preached, they've heard the gospel preached, but they've never by faith believed the message. And maybe today's the day. God, I also pray for, for Christians, for people who know they're saved, that for whatever reason they're struggling. Maybe no one knows about it. Maybe just a few people know about it, but certainly you know about it and they know about it. And maybe they're struggling because they've not, by faith, believed your word and your promises. And maybe today's the day that you reminded them that you're in control, you're sovereign, and you're a God of your word. I 
pray during the time of invitation and reflection that we would call on you and by faith believe in your word trust in your word and have peace and confidence and God for that one who maybe is lost that they would for the first time trust in you for salvation and have their life changed today we ask this in Jesus name Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.